British author Ian McEwan wrote a fictional novel entitled Atonement. In it, a 13-year-old girl named Brioni makes a terrible mistake, and really it's more than just a mistake. She, she did a bad thing. She falsely accused her sister's boyfriend of committing a terrible crime, and because of her accusation, which was not true at all, her sister's boyfriend went to prison. And Briona, Brioni re later realizes that her accusation was completely false and that she had irreparably damaged numerous people's lives. And so throughout the novel, she attempts to atone for her sin. She tries to find forgiveness through various means, like becoming a nurse, but to no avail. Toward the end of the book, the reader is reminded of her unresolved guilt and her need for atonement. And we read these words. All she wanted to do was work, then bathe, then sleep, until it was time to work again. But it was all useless, she knew. Whatever skivvying or humble nursing she did, and however well or hard she did it, she would never undo the damage. She was unforgivable. You know, I've met people who believe themselves to be unforgivable. They did some terrible thing. They caused damage that can never be undone, never be made right, no matter how desperately they wish it could, or how much they were willing to pay or whatever they were willing to do. And the question that I have before us today is this. How do we make atonement for our sins? I mean, is forgiveness really, really possible? Atonement's not a word that you hear very much of these days. You know, every once in a while, someone will remark about a criminal who served out a sentence, and they'll say something like, well... You know, he atoned for his crimes, and we know what they mean. They mean that uh, he, he paid his debt to society. And, and I guess that really sort of gives us an idea of what atone means. What it means to atone is to pay the price for the bad things that you've done. But, but what if you've really done bad, bad things? I mean, things you can't take back. Things for which people hate you. Is there atonement for those things? And if that's you, is there atonement for you? There's a verse in the Bible that answers this question or provides us with an answer. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I would invite you to take your Bible and, if you have it, and turn to it, whether it's on, in your book or on your phone, or you can grab one of the Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, consider that Bible to be yours. Uh, we invite you to take that Bible and use it. It's not doing that pew any good. And don't worry, we'll replace it. And so you're not stealing. If you were, that would be yet another sin you would have to atone for. <laughs> but it's a gift. It's not stealing. So uh, take that Bible if you would like that. But we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And this verse simply says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we're going to do today is we're going to do a deep dive into the last phrase in this verse, because that's where we'll find the answer to the question. 
Is there atonement for the worst things we have done? And so if you look at this verse, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it's Jesus speaking to his disciples. And here's the setting. They're making their way to Jerusalem. Uh, and Jesus had already told them that once they get to Jerusalem, that's where he's going to be arrested and he's going to be uh, tortured and he's going to be killed. And so, as you might imagine, the disciples that are with Jesus are not quite as eager as Jesus is to go to Jerusalem. In fact, they can't figure out why he wants to go. Um, but off to Jerusalem they go. Unbeknownst to them, the reason why. But by the time Jesus makes this statement, there's only one stop between where the disciples are and Jerusalem. It's the town of Jericho. And uh, Jerusalem is only an 18-mile walk from Jericho, easily accomplished in one day. And so every step that they get closer to Jericho is another step that they get closer to Jerusalem, where, again, their master, their rabbi, predicted with absolute certainty that he would be killed. And I'm sure they were thinking, you know, doesn't he know that when death is awaiting you, you go the other direction? I mean... Don't you know you go away from death, not toward death? Why is he doing this? What is so important that you'd be willing to give your life for that? I mean, what's more important than your own life, Jesus? And it's as if Jesus knew that they had this question perhaps rattling around in their minds because in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus tells them exactly what is so important that he would lay down his life. But, you know, before we dive into uh, this verse, I want to read just a couple of uh, others preceding Mark 10, 25 to give you a better idea of the context. Back in verse 32, we read, Mark records that, the, that they were going on the road and they were going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and the disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. And, and so he, he took the twelve aside again. And he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. And here's what he said. He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise. After three days. Well, upon hearing this prediction for at least the third time now, a couple of the disciples, brothers, James and John, they decide to approach Jesus with a request. They ask Jesus that when he enters into his glory that they might be able to sit on his right and left side. This highly irritates the other disciples. It is like having a co-worker go up to the boss that you both share and asking the boss in front of you, Sir, I deserve a raise. Just me. Thank you. You wouldn't like that, would you? And the disciples didn't like well, James and John did either. And so Jesus knew he had a little bit of a situation 
on his hands. And so Jesus gathers all of the twelve together and he says to them all these words. Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. And it is at that point that Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's sort of a strange title if you're not familiar with the context. Jesus is essentially claiming deity. The title Son of Man it is a title of deity that goes all the way back to the book of Daniel, written hundreds of years before. And, and you could do a great study on the title, The Son of Man. And you might write yourself a note to do that. We won't do that today. But then Jesus says that even though He is the eternal Son of Man, He did not come to be served by others, but to serve Others. And so you can sense the humility of Jesus because he knows that he is the Messiah who is at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, a title for God the Father. And yet, even though he has this, this great acclaim, this great honor, he did not come to be served by people like you and me and people like the disciples, but he came to serve us. And by the way, that's a great lesson for any of us who want to get a little bit full of ourselves. That Jesus humbled himself and considered himself a servant. But our focus today will be on that last phrase again of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, that question before us today, is there any way to atone for the really, really, bad things that we've done. And the answer is found in three truths in that phrase in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. First of all, you have to understand this. It is possible for you to lose your life. It is possible for you to forfeit your life. You can forfeit your entire life. You have that ability. Jesus said that he came to give his life. I mean, he was getting ready to forfeit his own life and for a purpose. Have you ever known someone who forfeited their life? I mean, maybe at least figuratively. They forfeited the life. We see people who seemingly have it all. They've got a career. They've got family. They've got wealth. I mean, they've got everything that someone might, might ask for. And yet, they, they throw it away with some seemingly irrational decision, some spur-of-the-moment bad decision that they make. They chose the wrong thing, and it cost them everything. It cost them their marriage. It cost them their career. It cost them wealth. And we think, well, you know, they forfeited everything. They threw it all away. What a foolish choice they made. But, you know, most of the time when we talk about someone losing everything, we talk about someone forfeiting their life, we're talking about that figuratively. I mean, they're still alive. You know, they still have an opportunity. Maybe they won't be able to redeem themselves completely. Maybe they won't be able to fully recover from, uh, from where they came. But at least they're still alive. And there's, a, there's an opportunity. There's a chance there. 
But you know, there is a type of permanent forfeiture of life. I mean, a real forfeiture of life, a literal forfeiture. People can do things that literally and tragically cost them their very lives. Jesus said elsewhere, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? Many of your translations say lose his soul. But the word soul and life are the same. It's the Greek word psyche. It means life. It means whatever makes you up. What is a gain? I mean, what, what profit is there to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? We have the ability. We have the, the free will, if you will, to, to forfeit or lose our very lives. And you know, the tragedy is that when a person's life has been permanently lost, it is absolutely irrevocable. There's no way to buy that life back. In fact, according to Jesus, a single human life is worth more than all of the riches of the world. The entire world, think about that, the entire world does not possess enough resources to sufficiently purchase back a life that has been forfeited. And so that teaches us a, a great and terrible lesson, that when a life has been extinguished, when a life has been forfeited, there's no way on earth for it to be redeemed. There's no earthly way. The earth itself and all of its inhabitants cannot bring that life back. It is forfeited forever. The only way a forfeited life can be redeemed is for something extra-worldly to take place. And that is what the Son of Man came to do. Jesus believed that our lives had been forfeited. By who? By us. We have forfeited our lives. How do we do that? Because of our sin. You see, because of our sin, we have lost our very lives. We have forfeited any right or any claim to even being alive. The fact that we are alive right now is simply because we exist in a temporary, merciful condition that will soon be made right. Every single last one of us will someday die, rightly and justly, unless the Lord intervenes some other how, some other way. And if, if we in this life, while we are temporarily alive, fail to find atonement for the things that we've done, even the very, very bad things that we've done, then that sentence of death will extend beyond this world. In fact, the Bible says that we will experience a second death. And that second death is eternal and very, very bad indeed. That's pretty dark news. It's pretty heavy news. But you know what? Jesus gives us good news. In the midst of that. Because even though Jesus knows that every single one of us has forfeited our lives, here's what he did. He forfeited his life to redeem us. Is there any way to atone for really, really 
bad things that I've done? Yes, there is. You see, the bad things, whether they're great or small, every bad thing requires the forfeiture of a life. There's no amount of money you have. There's no amount of good deeds that you could ever do that would pay the equivalent of the cost required for the bad things you've done because that cost is a forfeited life. But that's why Jesus came. He came to forfeit his life in order to redeem yours. And by the way, if you have done something so terrible that it absolutely destroyed someone else's life, please know this. Jesus forfeited his life to also redeem the life of the person you have harmed. The person that you have irrevocably harmed can experience the same redemption of God that Jesus offers you. And so, yes, we have forfeited our lives because of sin, but, but Jesus forfeited his own life because he was righteous. And that's one reason why the very bad things we've done can be atoned. The second reason is because of the ransom that Jesus paid. He talks about a ransom in this verse. Now, normally when you're not thinking of a ransom, we think of someone who's been kidnapped. You know, someone's kidnapped, they're held for ransom. The kidnappers want money in exchange for the person's freedom. In ancient days, a ransom was typically either one of two things. It was, it was a, an invading army came in and captured some people. The victorious army would hold some of the people for ransom, especially if they were important people, noblemen and that type of thing. They would hold them for a ransom, expecting a payment from the defeated nation. Or if a slave was to be set free, a ransom would have to be paid to purchase the slave's freedom. But in every case, whether it's, you're talking about a kidnapping or whether you're talking about an invading army or you're talking about a freed slave, the idea is the same. A life somehow has been forfeited. Somehow a life has been captured by the enemy. And so a sufficient amount of money was paid to regain the life of the person that was lost. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the ransom. He paid the price required to set us free. His own life was the ransom. Now, some theologians have speculated that through Jesus' death, what happened was God paid a ransom to the devil in order to free us. But you know, there's nothing remotely in the Bible that, that indicates that. And I don't think it's ever appropriate for us to believe that somehow the devil is in some type of position over God. That somehow God is held hostage by the devil. You know, that's, that's just not, that's not accurate at all. God and the devil are not equivalents. There's only one creator, and it is God. There's only one authority and king over all, and it is God. So don't ever believe that God and the devil are somehow equals, because we do not, as Christians, we do not believe in dualism, okay? This is not yin and yang. This is not the black and white equals. This is not dark and light equals, because the reality is the devil has limited authority. The devil has to ask God permission to use the authority that God has given the devil. 
And the authority, by the way, that the devil has, it's temporary authority anyway. Because there's coming a day when the devil himself will bow down and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's coming a day after that when the devil himself will be thrown into the lake of fire. In the end, God wins. And so don't ever think that the devil and God are somehow just polar opposite of equals. They're not. God has all authority, and he's given it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the ransom, paid that he, the ransom price that he paid was not to the devil, but it was rather to satisfy the justice of God. Jesus paid the price required for God's justice to prevail. God's justice requires payment for sin. His justice required that sin be paid for in total. Even for the really, really bad things that you've done. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He paid for the really, really bad things that you've done. Way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ, a a prophecy was written about him in Isaiah 53. And part of that prophecy reads this way, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for me. But you know, there's one final and and incredibly important reason that the really, really bad things that you've done, the worst things you can think of, can be atoned. It is because Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary. Not only did Jesus pay for or redeem us on the cross, but he actually substituted himself for us. Again, Mark 10, 45, we read that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That little word, F-O-R, literally means in the stead of. When Jesus died on the cross, he died instead of us. He paid for our sins instead of you paying for your sins. How in the world can you atone for the really, really bad thing? that you've done, the things that have caused irreparable damage to another person's life, the things over which you cannot forgive yourself, well, you can't. You cannot atone for those things. Jesus did. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was more than sufficient to pay for those bad things that you've done. You need to remember that Jesus forfeited his life not only for your life, but also for the life of those you've harmed. 
And Jesus paid the ransom not only for your sins, but also for the sins of those that you've harmed. Jesus was not only the substitute for you, but he was the substitute for those that you've harmed. You know those really, really bad things that you've done that you have a hard time forgiving yourself over, the things that creep up from time to time, the things that hold you back, the things that discourage you, the things that make you wonder if God really loves you, if God really forgives you because you can't forgive yourself, the things that maybe somebody sometime reminds you of. And you thought you had sort of gotten past that, but you got that memory that comes back in your mind. Those things that you wish you could undo, you wish somehow you had a time machine to go back in time and so it never would have happened. And you're so sad and you're so upset and you're so depressed and you're so angry that you did those things. You can't imagine why you would ever do those things. Those things are no problem for what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for it all. And the people that you've harmed, they can receive all of the benefits of God's forgiveness, all of the benefits of God's restoration that Jesus also makes available to you. I know that I'm speaking to some people that you haven't done those really, really bad things to other people. You you really wouldn't hurt a fly. You wouldn't intentionally ever hurt somebody else. Not intentionally. But you've been hurt. Other people have done really, really bad things to you. And you have to deal with the anger and the resentment and the bitterness because of other people's actions toward you. Maybe even while you were a child and you were helpless. And those things stick with you throughout your entire life. And you have such a hard time forgiving. You know you ought to forgive as a Christian, but you have such a hard time forgiving. Listen, I don't want to diminish any bad thing that you've done to someone else or that someone has done for you. But I'll just say this. The worst crime ever committed is not what happened to you. And not necessarily directly attributable attributable to what you've done to someone else. The worst crime ever committed is one that you participated in. You contributed to the death of the sinless Son of God on a cross. Because of our sin, Jesus died on the cross. And yet He forgives us. Therefore, we must forgive one another. Because of our sin, Jesus died on the cross. But because of the cross, Jesus atoned for our sins. And that's the good news I want to share with you. There's atonement. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's new life in God. But there's one final word. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That should make us pause and think. It's the last word of that verse. The Son of Man came... To give his life as a ransom for many. Wouldn't it be better if that word was all? But it's not. 
It's many. Didn't Jesus die on the cross for all? Certainly he did. But the ransom only applies to many. Why? Why just many? The word many should remind us that there is a condition to receiving the forgiveness that God offers. There's no condition to God's love. There's no condition to God's offer. But there's a condition to receiving it. The condition is simply belief. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are no unbelievers in heaven. There aren't. And there never will be. God, from the very beginning of creation and even before, had a plan to create a kingdom of believers who would freely love Him and receive Him. And nothing that has ever happened in all of humanity has ever changed that, not even our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, God's plan is still the same for a kingdom of believers to be a part of His kingdom, to be a part of His family. God requires one thing of us to believe. And if today, whether you're someone who's harmed other people irreparably or you've been irreparably harmed, or even somewhere in the middle, God requires one thing of you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone listening to this message will be found among the many. They'll be found among those who say, yes, I believe. I receive all that Jesus has done for me and for others. And Father, I pray that our stubbornness, the hurt that we've caused or the hurt that we experience will not hinder us from believing in you, but it would rather drive us to believe in you, to seek out forgiveness, the forgiveness that we need from you. And Father, let us also be people who forgive, to forgive one another, to love and care for one another, as members of your family should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.